Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Now, uh, get your Bibles out. If you want a Bible uh, and don't have one, take one from your nearest neighbor that has one. No, I'm kidding. You can look at this electronically if you want, or you can follow along on the screen, or the ushers can get you a, a, a Bible. But I'm going to keep reminding you and encouraging you to bring your Bible to church, and that's a little bit about what this sermon is. But did I say where to go yet? First Kings chapter 11. We're not going to read right this second, but you can hold your place there. And we are continuing this morning on the subject of valuing the Word of God. We have seen that God gives bread to us to eat and seed to us so that we can sow it. But there are examples throughout history of people who have plenty of access uh, to the Word of God and do nothing with it. You know, we have all heard, uh, we hear, I think, fairly often from missionaries who tell stories uh, about ministering, uh, or they tell stories about others ministering in countries where there is no ready access to the Bible, to the Word of God. There might be one Bible in a village, and they divide it up, they tear it out by parts, and they share pages, or they share chapters, or individual books of the Bible, and pass it from house to house, and people devour it. They tell stories about how when a shipment, sometimes this shipment has to be smuggled in because technically they're being brought into an area of the world or a nation where it's illegal. Uh, there was an article, this wasn't in a Christian publication, this was on Business Insider. Just yesterday or the day before I was reading that uh, Dave, I mean, we, this is not news to us, this is some, not something that should surprise us. I was just encouraged that it was uh, in a secular news feed that in North Korea, whole families Young children even are being imprisoned and even executed for owning a Bible. That officially, their official whatever law, I don't know if they have a, any kind of constitution, but the official position of North Korea is they have freedom of religion as long as it does not undermine uh, the Kim family uh, or the state authorities. So that gives them a broad, I mean, oh, you got a Bible, that means this is seditious behavior, we're going to throw you in prison. Well, you have freedom of religion, yeah, but not if it's going to threaten the state. And they see Christianity and the Bible as a threat to the state. Does that mean there are no Bibles in North Korea? No. It just means it's, in, very, in a very practical sense, it's impossible to identify other Christians. There may be an, uh, an underground church in North Korea, but it is much more secret than the underground church in China was. Either way... It's dangerous business. So when people get their hands on a Bible, and it's not always that extreme, sometimes it's a matter of it's not so much a legal threat as they just never had it before. Maybe it's a brand new translation into a language that the Bible hasn't been printed in yet. But when they get their hands on the Bible, they weep, they kiss their Bibles, they hug them, and they read them. Versus in many, uh, in the lives of many believers, believing families, believing churches, we've got stacks of Bibles, multiple Bibles in one household. And uh, they're gathering dust. 
they're not being read. They might be referred to, might take them to a Bible study, might take them to church, might take them to class. But are we devouring that word? Are we loving that word? In many cases, in other churches, not this one, uh, there is no deep, manifest love for the word of God. Uh, but I just want you to understand, this is not unique to our time. It's certainly not unique to uh, the United States of America. The setup for what we're going to read today uh, takes place right before the death of Solomon. Solomon, of course, was David's son, King David's son, and he built, you know, David put the country in a place of rest. God did that through David, but David was the mighty warrior who pushed the boundaries, the God-given boundaries of Israel out just about to where God said they should be. Uh, subdued all of his enemies, and then his son inherited a peaceful kingdom. And so he was able to expend his great wisdom and energy and resources on building a beautiful city, building the temple, building a palace, the palace grounds, many um, public works. He improved the quality of living, and in fact, uh, it wasn't all just practical. It was so beautiful, it was so outstanding, that people were coming in from all over the world to meet Solomon and to just check out the beauty of Jerusalem and the surrounding area. This is right before he died. And God sent a prophet named Ahijah to meet a man named Jeroboam. Jeroboam was a brilliant man. He was a loyal servant to Solomon. And he was the head of the entire labor force that did all of these works that Solomon uh, imagined and dreamed up actually through the gift of God. Solomon designed all this stuff, gave it to Jeroboam and said, make it so. And Jeroboam gathered the workforce, oversaw all this stuff, and again served him loyally. Ahijah went to meet Jeroboam and told him, this is what's going to happen. He actually took a garment that he was wearing, tore it into 12 pieces and gave 10 of them to Jeroboam and said, this is what's going to happen to Israel. It's going to be divided up. And 10 tribes are going to be yours. God's going to give uh, these tribes into your hand, and you'll be their king. Uh, but he said he would leave one tribe under the control, under the rule of the house of David. Why? Because God had promised that his, one of his descendants would always sit on the throne. And in this, this case, it was going to be Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Um, and this was because, the reason this division was going to happen is because under the rule of Solomon, and actually because of Solomon, Israel had unfortunately uh, been greatly polluted with the sin of idolatry. If you don't know why, you can go back and read about the reign of Solomon. Uh, so, because of this idol worship, here's what we read in 1 Kings chapter 11, beginning in verse 37. So I will take you, speaking to Jeroboam, and you shall reign over all your heart desires, and you shall be king over Israel. Then it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways, and do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house, as I built for David, and will give Israel to you. So a little while later, in case you're wondering, oh, he's going to give 10 to Jeroboam and one to Judah. The tribe of Benjamin was essentially absorbed into the tribe of Judah. So you had those two tribes in the south and 10 in the north. 
uh, and the south became known as the kingdom of Judah, north became known as the kingdom of Israel. But a little while later, Rehoboam goes to Shechem for his coronation ceremony, and Jeroboam appears as a spokesman for the people of Israel. And here's the, the case he made is one for lower taxes. The people were very happy with the kingdom that Solomon had built, but it didn't come cheap. Uh, they were very heavily taxed, and they had other sources of income, other sources of revenue, which is basically tribute money from the nations that they had uh, subdued. But they said, you know, now that this beautiful kingdom is built, we would like to enjoy a little bit more of the fruits of our own labor. So ease the burden on us, please. And we'll gladly serve you. And Rehoboam says, give me three days. And he consulted with his father's advisors. And uh, here's what they said, and this is really worth looking at. So look at it. First Kings chapter 12, verse 7. And they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a, listen to this, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. He's talking to the king. But he's saying, if you would be a servant to these people, these, these advisors are telling the king this, if you would serve these people, Speak, tell them what they're asking for is legitimate. Tell them you're going to do that, and then they'll be your servants. This mutual service is what I want you to see. Uh, and we still have this idea when we talk about public servants. Now, we, we're living in a day and age where we don't see public servants actually in the game to serve us, do we? Who are they serving? They're serving themselves. They're, they're pursuing a career. They're pursuing power, and not just here. But, uh, you know, you look at... you. Know, Words like uh, minister, especially uh, like, like in uh, Great Britain and other countries, talk about prime ministers, uh, a, the ministry of defense, the ministry of this secretary, all these words that indicate service rather than authority and rule. But he's saying, you serve these people and these people will serve you. That's a pretty good, uh, pretty good system right there, I think. It's a pretty good idea. But Rehoboam instead... Instead of saying, yeah, great idea, thank you for sharing your wisdom, that's the clear path, he consults with his buddies, his peers, the guys, the young men he grew up with. So what do you think? Uh, they're saying that I should uh, uh, ease the burden on the people. And they said, what are you talking about? You ain't here to serve these people. You're the king. Man, you give them a little slack. And they'll walk all over you. So what you're going to tell them, what you got to tell them is you think my dad was harsh? You think he was tough? I'm going to show you what tough is. You ain't seen nothing yet. And that's when Jeroboam said, see ya. Come on, Israel. Let's get out of here. We'll let the house of David take care of itself. And just like that, more or less, there were two kingdoms. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Ten tribes and two tribes that became one. Benjamin and Judah in the south. Now, Rehoboam's response was to start to gather his army. He was going to force the issue. Well, uh, if they're going to break away, if they're going to rebel, then we're going to have a civil war to keep the union together, as it were. But Shemaiah, man of God, told him, don't do it. What's happening is of the Lord. Uh, and the word, the specific word of the Lord to Rehoboam was, don't, don't go to war against your brother. And Rehoboam listened, made his army stand down. But now Jeroboam had a problem because God had told him, 
you lead this people in a way that honors me. As long as you obey me, you're going to stay on the throne. I can make a dynasty out of you, but you have to follow my commandments. That means follow the law. Now, in the law were specific directions about how they were to worship. Uh, The people who ran the temple worship, who served as priests, were from the tribe of Levi. And the Levites served in the temple and in the the temple courtyard. And they, they performed all these sacrifices and stuff. And part of their worship was to appear in Jerusalem at certain times to make certain sacrifices, to perform certain rituals. And Jeroboam thought, ugh, the people here that God has given to me journey to Jerusalem, even once, let alone with any regularity, maybe their heart will be turned back to the kingdom of Judah and the house of David. Now, I personally think that was kind of God's plan all along. But either way, he couldn't change the law. I mean, he couldn't obey God and not let his people worship in Jerusalem. So what did he do? He sets up his own houses of worship. One in Bethel and one in Dan. And he starts appointing priests from other tribes. Whoever he liked, whoever he thought was loyal to him, congratulations, you're a priest. Made himself a priest and built altars in Dan and Bethel with, get this, golden calves. Gold calves. And says what? Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Do you remember this when Moses was up on the mountain and Aaron? did the same thing. And God was furious. And he's furious now. I mean, he's furious in this, in this story. This became, sadly, this became Jeroboam, who had a wonderful reputation as this loyal servant, talented, gifted uh, public servant, and then who God personally sends a prophet to says, you just keep glorifying me, honoring me, and I'm going to give you a kingdom. Here's his legacy. Here's how he became known throughout the rest of the Bible. And you see this phrase again and again and again and again and again. Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. Who's Jeroboam? The guy that caused Israel to sin. How did he cause him to sin? He set up Why did God split the kingdom? Why did God take part of the kingdom away from the house of David? Because of idol worship. And what is the first thing that Jeroboam does? Institutes idol worship. He didn't call it that. He said, these are, you know how they would have said it. He's not saying, turn your back on Jehovah. He's saying, we don't need to go to Jerusalem. We've got a representation. Uh, You might say a molded image. Graven image of who God is. And it's these calves. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. Stay here. It's safer here. It's easier. Easier. It's closer. Now, all that's the setup for what we really are looking at today. In 1 Kings chapter 13, an unnamed man of God was sent to Jeroboam with a remarkably specific prophecy. Let's read. This is a longer passage, but let's read it. Uh, Beginning in chapter 13, verse 1. And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel, by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Then he cried out, this is the man of God, cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David. 
And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you. And men's bones shall be burned on you. I, I talk about this being a specific prophecy because he was talking about a literal king, Josiah by name, who went and did exactly this 300 years later. And he gave a sign the same day, this is verse 3, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So he's saying, altar. He comes in the presence of King Jeroboam and, says, and speaks to the altar. Josiah is going to come one of these days and burn the priests and the bones of, that, that, that offered incense to you. And here, here's how you're going to know my prophecy is true. Now this altar is going to split and the ashes be poured out. And so it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Arrest him! Then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered so that he could not pull it back to himself. His hand withered, and he couldn't even hide the witheredness because he couldn't, he couldn't pull it back. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as before. Then, this is important. I know this is a long passage. Don't check out on me. This is super important. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you. Nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to, to Bethel. Now, in Bethel, there was an old prophet. And his sons came to him and said, Dad, let's, let's tell you what happened. And they related this story to the old prophet. And he said, is he still here? No, he took off. Which way did he go? That way. Saddle up my donkey, boys. I got to meet this guy. He gets on the donkey and uh, he finds him. He catches up to him. He said, hey, are you the prophet? Uh, that, uh, are you the, the man of God who just spoke and split the altar? He says, yeah, that was me. He says, I'm a prophet too. Come have supper with me. Come to my house. Eat and drink with me. And we pick it up in verse 16. And he said, I cannot return with you nor go in with you, and neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. He already said that once, didn't he? Said it to Jeroboam. He said to him, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. And in case we miss it, it says right there, he was lying to him. <laughs> so he went back with him and ate bread in his house, and drank water. And then in the middle of supper, the old prophet gets a word from the Lord and says, because you disobeyed the word of the Lord, uh, you're not going to make it home alive. You're going to die before you make it home. And even your corpse isn't going to make it home. And sure enough, 
I don't know if he finished his meal or not, but the old, or sorry, the man of God takes off, gets on his donkey, and as he's traveling home, a lion attacked him and killed him. The old prophet heard about it. He went and retrieved the body and entombed him in Bethel. And we read in chapter 13, beginning in verse 33. Now, this, this, this is such a weird thing that the old prophet did what he did in the first place. But then he goes and retrieves this body, entombs it in his own tomb, and said, hey, boys, when I die, you put my body next to this guy because he was truly a man of God. He truly prophesied, and I, know I want to be buried. Lamented over him, honored him, and everything. And word, apparently of this whole episode got back to Jeroboam. Because in verse 33, beginning in verse 33, we read this. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. But again, he made priests from every class of people for the high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated him. And he became one of the priests of the high places. He became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam, so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. And again, the way this is worded, Jeroboam knew about this. And this is a message from God to Jeroboam. Don't think you're going to get away with this. Even my prophets can't get away with this. If I give a word to my prophet, even though he's a prophet, if he doesn't obey what I've told him, he's not going get, to get away with it. So don't think you're going to get away with it either. I don't cut slack when it comes to this. So there's the story. What does it really have to do with us? And if you're like me, again, you might be thinking, wow, uh, that's kind of harsh. I mean, how? here's the question I have. How was the man of God supposed to know this prophet was lying? All he was trying to do was respond to a prophetic word. And this was a legitimate prophet. That question really is at the very center of this message. First, let me say this. When we read events in the Bible that seem harsh, they seem uh, otherwise extraordinary, it's good to remember that 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says this. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, as they were written for our admonition upon whom the ed ends of the age have come. Ends of the ages have come. Go back and read that whole passage sometime. God is showing us. We read about the, this, these strong acts of judgment uh, these warnings and God judging his people, and it seems harshly, it seems quickly. He's saying God did those things to those people back then to show us something. Not that God is judging uh, and acting uh, the same way he did then, but really, considering the age we're living in, to remind us of what, again, what our salvation costs God and what we have been saved from. He's reminding us that, yeah, even though you've been forgiven because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, sin is still a very serious thing. And all sin that is not covered by the blood of Christ is going to be judged. The wrath of God is going to fall on those people. You don't want to be those people. Anyway, the short answer is this when we talk about how could God so uh, harshly judge this guy, the man of God had what we know and what he knew was a word from God, right? 
he quoted it to Jeroboam. And he said it to the prophet. Look, no offense. He didn't say, Jeroboam, you're a sinner, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't soil myself by, soil myself, I wouldn't sully myself, I would not lower myself, pollute myself by going into your polluted household and eating with you. I won't have anything to do with you. That's two, two weeks in a row, right? Uh, quotable. I got, I don't think I'll share with the congregation what everybody was giving me a hard time about last week. Russ, what do you say? Yay or nay? Okay, nay. Uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, uh, to um, honor you with my presence. Oh, king, I just don't hold you in high regard. He didn't say that. He certainly didn't say it to the prophet. To the prophet, it was more like, no offense, but God told me specifically, thanks for the invitation. I can't come because God did tell me very clearly, don't eat bread, don't eat the drink water here, don't, and don't even go home the same way, so I got to go. And the guy says, I get it. Believe me, I get this prophet stuff. Turns out, in case you didn't know, I'm a prophet too. And an angel from God just told me, the only reason I'm here, I wouldn't have come out here just to shake your hand. I've been sent by an angel of the Lord who told me to come out and take you back for a supper. Oh, okay. How are you supposed to respond? Maybe... This guy was so persuasive and so hospitable that it just didn't occur to the man of God to go back and reconsider. Now, wait a second. What did I hear from God? And it wasn't a, did God really say what I thought he said to me? It was more like, oh, I guess God's changing his mind. I guess God's speaking to me now to see if I'm going to respond. On one hand, I have a sure word from God. On the other hand, I have a prophet, a legitimate prophet, apparently, saying an angel told him to tell me, never mind what God told you. And look at it like that, it kind of seems obvious. What he did wrong. I mean, look, you had a word from God that emboldened you to speak to the king that way, to respond to the prophet that way on purpose. Why would you take a word from a guy who you don't know, saying an angel told him to tell you to never mind what God said? But that's us reading it today. How many of us, I wonder, would pass that test? You know, speaking of tests, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days, he was hungry. And Satan said, look, you're the son of God. Why go on being hungry? There are stones here. Turn them into bread and eat. And what did Jesus say? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus had a word from the Spirit of God that led him to be where he was. And I think it's perfectly safe to assume that Jesus, part of the guidance, part of the word he had was fast until I tell you to eat, or maybe fast for this number of days. But either way, it wasn't a matter of, gee, I'm hungry so I think I'll stop fasting and turn these stones to bread. God's word sent him to a place of hunger, and he knew that God's word would relieve that hunger. And why turn the stones to bread? When it came time to break that fast, when he felt the release or simply got the word, okay, it's done, he could simply ask his father for bread. 
You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 9, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? And this is exactly what the devil's saying. This is a stone. Eat it. Just turn it to bread first. And Jesus quotes scripture. It is written. But he's also saying, why would I eat a stone? Why would I bother turning a stone to bread? If I ask my father for bread, he'll give me bread. Satan, but Satan was approaching Jesus with a logical argument. You are God the Son, the Son of God. You have miraculous power at your disposal. Why not change stone to bread? But Jesus responded to Satan's logic with a direct quote from God. I mentioned last week that there has been a a recent resurgence of interest in demons and the demonic. There has also been, in recent years, an increased interest in the prophets and the prophetic prophecy. I'm not going to rant on this. Uh, and I've, I may have referred to this from the pulpit. It, it would be very unlikely that I haven't referred to it from the pulpit, but I've had many conversations with many of you that I couldn't begin to tell you how many times in recent years, um, how often and how many times I received uh, on social media, email, text messages, links to a prophetic message. Come here, brother so-and-so, pastor so-and-so, prophet so-and-so, and many of the same guys in rotation, different prophecies, different messages. And a lot of this, uh, as you know, as many of you well know, was during the election, it was during COVID, uh, it was during uh, all that turmoil. And, uh, but it was, hey, look, this is prophecy. These are prophetic messages. And uh, some of these messages, some of the more common ones, some of the more obvious ones were about the election. This candidate is going to win. Or COVID, this disease is going to end by such and such a date. But it's mostly the election. You saw this stuff, right? Many of you? Just, you're not saying you endorse it, but were you familiar with how many of these messages were out there? How many of these messengers were out there? Uh, and some of them when their specific prophecies failed to materialize, some of them backed off. Some of them apologized for missing it here or there. Some of them doubled down. Some of them came back and said, well, what I really meant was this, or what God really meant was this. The point I'm making here is not to rail against them or tear down anybody's ministry or expose frauds or anything like that. It's simply this. How many of us latched on to a prophetic word because, A, it made logical sense, or B, it appealed to something we already wanted to believe. It gets confusing. You know, we're commanded in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies. This is where the man of God was back in 1 Kings. I think he was anyway. He had respect for the office of the prophet, Respect for the prophetic gift. He didn't want to be accused or blamed of rejecting prophecy. Or despising prophecy. Problem is, again, he already had a clear word from God for himself. 
And in the very next verse in 1 Thessalonians, what's it say? 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test all things and hold fast to what is good. So here's the pertinent question. What do we test it with? What do we test it against? Yeah, 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now what he's referring to here is what's known as the transfiguration. When Peter, James, and John went up to the top of this mountain and they see Jesus in a glorified state conversing with Moses and Elijah, right? Moses and Elijah. And they're like, this, is, this was amazing. We, we, we saw this with our own eyes. They, Peter wanted to build tabernacles right there and just turn this whole place into a shrine of this event. He goes on to say, and so we have, this is verse 19, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, <clears throat> excuse me, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, what I'm saying is, Peter is referring to what had to... Sometimes we, kind of, we, yeah, we read the transfiguration, and maybe it doesn't hit us viscerally like a healing does, or something that's a little more personal. But this is something that everybody who was there... Wow, the one moment that really just shattered everything, every doubt, everything. In the three years I walked with Jesus, hands down, transfiguration. This is something we saw. When we came talking about Jesus to you, you have to understand, we weren't reporting to you something we heard from anybody else. We weren't following for anybody's clever tricks. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, his glory. We saw him in his glorified state. But what he goes on to say here is, but I'm not hanging my hat on that. What I saw at, on that day is not enough for me to hang my theological faith on, let alone for you to do it just because I told you I saw it. He's saying one of two things, probably both. And can you imagine what somebody else would do, somebody today who had an experience like that? This would be their ministry. This would be what they were known for. Anyway, he's saying one of two things here, probably both. And there's, you got to understand, there's, there's a little bit of uh, variance uh, in different translations of, of, the, uh, of this passage, but these two things are not at odds. I think they're complementary. One, one way of looking at this is uh, this event we witnessed simply verified prophecies concerning the Messiah that were already written in Scripture. We have the prophetic word confirmed. But another translation of where it says the prophetic word confirmed is, we have a more sure word of prophecy. In that case, the meaning is, even though we witness this amazing spectacle, we have something even more solid on which to base our faith. And you know what that thing is? It's the scriptures. I think this is the more accurate intended meaning, considering what Peter writes next. And he goes on talking about the 
the source of the scriptures. These weren't just people who sat around thinking about God and wrote their own ideas down. They were moved by God to write what they wrote, to speak what they heard God say. Scripture is our word from God. And we test all other prophetic utterances by Scripture. So, if a prophetic message is clearly contrary to the Word of God, and there have been. These are pretty rare, okay? I haven't seen much of this in my life personally, but we know, we've heard the stories where somebody could come up and say, thus saith the Lord, I no longer uh, endorse the New Testament. I'm bringing you into a new season. This is something like God bless, God save, and God deliver the people because they're the nicest people in the world, but the, the Mormons come very close to this. Yeah, this is what the Bible says, but we have a, another testament of Jesus. And there are places where it clearly contradicts what you would call the New Testament. But since it's final, since it's later, it has the authority. You take a, a monster uh, from, from some of our lifetimes. Some of us are old enough to remember Jim Jones. Uh, who started off as uh, you know, preaching the Bible. Very charismatic guy. Uh, uh, very, I mean, he was involved and favored by secular politicians. He had a lot of what we would call godly favor. But he also had a lot of personal charisma. And uh, there came a time when he would start saying, I've, I've had m particular revelation from God. And the same people that, that loved him and followed him because of his preaching, his powerful preaching of the Word of God, continued to follow him out of personal loyalty when he started ripping pages out of the Bible and walking on them in church to show where God was taking them. And nearly a thousand people followed him in mass suicide. And we say, well, that guy was clearly a cultist. Nobody should have ever followed him. But it didn't happen all at once. He didn't show up on the scene doing that, right? So if a prophetic message is contrary contrary to the written word, we reject it. If it is confirmed by the word of God, we can embrace it. Sometimes it's neither, at least at the moment of utterance. Meaning, somebody can say, this is what the word of the Lord says, this, such and such a thing is going to happen. Or even, many, many times in recent years, such and such a thing is going to happen by such and such a date. What do we do in that case? Well, it's not specifically contradicting Scripture. There's nothing in the Scripture that says so-and-so is going to win the election. COVID's going to be gone by a certain date. So what do you do? What do you do? Shelve it. Wait. Pray about it. Ask for discernment. Ask for discerning of spirits. Of what spirit is this prophecy? Is it from you, God? Will God speak to us about this stuff? You better believe he will if we ask him about this stuff. Wait and see. Stay alert. Don't be bullied by people quoting 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Ah, ah, ah. You're despising prophecy. You're quenching the spirit. No, you're not. You're testing all things. You're holding to what is good. Remember this from Galatians 1. Uh, Galatians chapter 1 verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, 
than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. This is super important. I think it's a good thing. I think it is a good thing that the prophetic ministry is being recovered, that they're being considered legitimate. The body of Christ at large has seen a sort of a thaw, a slow thaw in recent years when it comes to denominational churches, traditional churches, making room for the gifts of the Spirit. Traditionally cessationist organizations, because largely, I think, in many cases, because of what's happening on the mission field, are having to step back and say, these people were speaking in tongues, and we can't deny that they were. So they're taking a softer position on these things. And now that's come to include um, other manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit, including prophecy. Now, again, this doesn't look like full-scale conversion in terms of official church doctrine, but it is an opening, a warming to the work of the Spirit. Unfortunately, I think, I think it's hard to argue against this statement, but I'm not making it from Scripture or from a particular Scripture right now. We have a tendency to gravitate toward the spectacular, and therefore we are susceptible to being swayed by the loudest voice, the boldest voice, because they're easier to hear than the still, small voice of the Spirit. This puts tremendous pressure on some big-name big name ministers to be the voice of God. They feel this pressure because of the support they have to uh, meet certain expectations. This is dangerous. There's a danger that they have, and there's a danger for us because of this misplaced loyalty. None of us are, are exempt from this, by the way. I know people, you know people, you might be people who put so much stock in Brother Hagen, who holds, I'll put this, who puts who hold Brother Hagen in such high regard that you will be offended if somebody asks a question about something Brother Hagen taught. Let me tell you, as a man who admires and appreciates the legacy of this church, and uh, as a graduate of Rama, when Brother Hagen was still there, I love and appreciate this man's ministry so much, but I could tell you specific things he said where I think he missed it. He could probably tell you, could have probably told you, uh, things where he said he missed it. He would. He was humble enough to say that. I know people who feel the same way about Brother Copeland. And God bless him for, for what he meant, especially in the early days of this church. But I had a conversation with somebody recently. It was just kind of funny. They were just telling me about how he had uh, said something about uh, his, uh, his father-in-law's rank in, uh, in World War II. Said he, was, he was a, uh, said he was a sergeant major, and he had three stripes up, three stripes down, and a diamond in the middle. And the person telling me this story was, was kind of, he said, I never knew that, did you? I said, well, no. But by the way, three, three up, three down, and a diamond in the middle is a first sergeant. It's not a sergeant major. No, he said sergeant major. I said, I'm not saying he didn't say that. He's just mistaken. He, he wasn't in. He didn't know. No, I went, back and, he told me, I went back and listened to again. He described the rank insignia, and he said sergeant major. I said, I'm not arguing with you that he didn't say that, and I'm not calling him a liar. He's just... It's a little detail, but he was so, so uh, devoted to every word that came out of Copeland's mouth that he couldn't conceive of 
anything other than I was accusing him of lying. I'm like, no, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. But you can't hold anybody in such high regard. You can't put people on pedestals like that. Unless it's me. You can trust me, okay? No, don't you dare. (laughs) There's this misplaced loyalty to man and also a fear that is often manipulated out of you to touch not God's anointed. Now, I agree, we should be very careful. Very careful when it comes to criticizing. There are people, and this just grates on me, who think it is their calling, or a major part of their calling, to be God's, you know, I'm God's anointed critic of every other ministry. I will tell you what's wrong with every other church, every other minister, big name or small name. God's called me to expose what's wrong with everybody else. That's that, you won't find that ministry listed in the Bible. At the same time, you can't just say, well, God bless them. They're doing what God's told them to do. No, they might be absolute wolves in sheep's clothing. And as, at least as family, as a church family, uh, in, my, in my role as an elder and a shepherd, if you come up and say, what do you think of so-and-so? I'm going to tell you if I think there's a danger there. But there's a difference between that and railing. I got, I got too much good news to share, too much gospel to preach, to spend time picking apart everybody else's ministry. All right? And you do too. You've got too much to do. You've got too much living the gospel and preaching the gospel to do. Okay? But it has been uh, kind of a, a shield against any sort of criticism. Oh, you're scrutinizing me. You better be careful. Don't touch God's anointed. Okay, oh, well, I won't, I, I, won't say any, I won't question anything you say because I don't want God to kill me because I'm touching his anointed. We also have a tendency, as I, as I alluded to, to embrace with less scrutiny the messages that resonate with what we already feel or think. And if we're not careful, the Bible does talk about that. We find ourselves in the category of people who have what? Itching ears. I'm going to listen to this person, man, they're of God. All you really mean by that is, "Mm, he's saying what I already thought. Why are you thinking that? Are you basing it on scripture? Are you basing it on on something else you're passionate about? In the same time as all of this, the Bible is falling into uh, disrepute, wider and wider disrepute among the population at large. It is so easy. This is something uh, uh, that, I don't know, one of those mysteries of the algorithm, I guess. And you know, it's one of the scary things how your phone's always listening to you. And it'll pop up if I go on those, you know, uh, whether it's on Facebook or YouTube, those little shorts. Every other one now is some atheist making an argument about some one little point. Uh, And it is so easy to find these. Hundreds of them, I'm sure thousands of them, where it's some, and it might be some professional, you know, Christopher Hitchens or somebody like that, uh, or more usually it's just some uh, armchair uh, critic or atheist where they'll just focus in on one verse or passage or maybe just an idea from scripture almost always wildly out of context usually something like this you know nothing is more obvious to civilized man enlightened man good people than that slavery is evil 
So why, when the Bible talks about slavery, does it tell you how to treat your slaves? Why doesn't it just come out and condemn slavery? So we know the Bible's false. And there, that's the whole video. And just that little snippet would cause your average teenager, if they're not well-grounded in the Word, and your average teenager is not well-grounded in the Word, to say, yeah, yeah, the God of the Bible, if he exists, is a monster. Or more likely, this was just some primitive man writing this. Christianity is being shoved out of the government and the marketplace. It's much more believable now than it was even just 20 years ago that we could be jailed or imprisoned for actually living and speaking and sharing our beliefs. The only thing that's going to preserve a believing community is a knowledge of the Word of God. The bread is here, but we must eat it. Read this book. Read it. And you know what? If as you're reading it, you have questions, in fact, let me back up. If you're reading it and you don't have questions, you're not reading it. Don't. Here's what you do with those questions. Write them down. Who's the first person you should talk to about those questions? Me. Exactly. Me. No. You talk to God about those questions. You pray about them. Lord, I don't understand this. Or if I understand it, I think I'm understanding it wrong. Can you help me understand it right? And then guess what? God does put people in your life with, who are gifted, who have all, or in many cases have simply already wrestled through these questions and have a pretty good answer. But ask them. If you've got questions, ask the questions. Don't let a prophet, even a true prophet, direct your decisions. When someone asks you the reason for the hope that is in you, you need to answer them from your understanding of God's word and your experience with God's word. You know, uh, tomorrow's Memorial Day, and uh, this isn't a Memorial Day ser sermon, but last year I preached one. Memorial Day is when we honor and remember those who made the ultimate sacrifice in defense of our nation, in defense of our freedoms. And uh, last year, I delivered a message with a Memorial Day theme. I think it was last year. Almost positive it was last year. And man, it was good. Look it up in the archives. <laughs> Watch it. Listen to it. But we talked about those who paid the ultimate price, not just in terms of persecution for their faith, but specifically paid the ultimate price in their fulfillment of God's calling to translate the Bible and distribute the Bible into as many cultures as possible. We talked about how people were literally killed, strangled, hanged, burned at the stake for translating the Bible into the vernacular, for daring to translate it from Latin into English or something like that. Why? Because they, these people understood the importance of having the Bible, reading the Bible, knowing the Bible, and understanding the Bible. They risked all because they understood how vital it is. And friends, the best way to honor their sacrifice is to read that Bible that has been preserved for us, made available to us, and to obey what we read 
and to share it. Praise and worship team, come up here. The rest of you can stand if you want, if you can. Thanks for sticking with me. So a long service, a little bit of a long, uh, little bit of a long sermon, uh, but you were very good listeners. I'm trusting that God reminds you of the things you need to be reminded of. And meanwhile, uh, these, look, these are trying times. And thank God that he has given us his written word. This is, talk about, you know, we live in dark times, surrounded by darkness. What is, the, what is one of the ways the word is described? It's a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. You need to know which way to go, what decisions to make, who to listen to, what to make of what somebody is saying. The Bible will offer you way more guidance than you think. Many times, and I'm not dismissing the gifts of the Spirit at all. There are, these gifts exist for a reason. God will speak to us. He'll give us a prophetic word. But often, often the questions you have and the struggles, what should I do with what this guy's saying? They're right there in the word. I heard, I'll give you one more sad example. Just read it this week. I don't know when he said it, but this is a prophet, a prophet. I'm not saying he's not. I'm just saying this is what he calls himself and what others call him. And I'm not going to name him. Uh, but what he said, uh, I think fairly... Green lights on. Okay. He said, if you're praying for President Biden, you are sinning. What? What does the Bible say? Doesn't say that. He's saying, no, listen, listen. The Bible tells us we're to pray for the office. The guy who's in the office is not there legitimately. Therefore, I'm like, what? that's not what the Bible says. It says pray for those who are in authority. That means the guy in the office is the one we're praying for. Now, you might be utterly convinced that he shouldn't be in the office. You might be utterly convinced that President Biden is doing a terrible job of leading. But what's our commandment? From Scripture to pray for him. Now, so when a prophet gets up and tells me, stop doing this, that, I'm not saying he is a false prophet. I'm saying he's at, very, at the very least missing it. But that message resonates with a lot of believers. So be careful. But that's just one easy example of how the word takes the difficulty out of what we're supposed to do. Well, this is a prophet, and he's saying that. He's wrong. The Bible says this. All right? I can pray for that prophet, too, by the way. Meanwhile, the Bible's a good thing. It's a great gift, and he has given us that written word to make us safe, to make us effective, and he's also given us the word made flesh. Jesus Christ, the living word of God, who comes into our life and gives us the Holy Spirit, who does what? Makes things known to us, explains the word, teaches us. This is a glorious, it's a glorious time to be alive. And this is a glorious gift God has given us, this relationship with him that was broken by sin and restored by the finished work of Jesus. We can't do this. We can't figure it out on our own. And none of us can be good enough to earn it. But God makes it available to us. This life, this new life, and this supernatural wisdom are available to us as his children. And the only way to become his child is to receive and confess and embrace the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
Romans chapter 10 says, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you need to make that decision today, now is the time to make it. Don't wait till this afternoon. Don't wait till after church. Don't wait till tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. I'm going to pray. When I'm done praying, they're going to sing. As soon as they start singing, you need to make that decision. You come up and make it today. Meanwhile, everybody else, while we're singing, while we're praying, you just commit in your heart. I'm going to start. I'm, I love the Word of God. I believe the Word of God. But I confess to you, God, I don't know the Word of God. But I'm going to start. Starting today, I'm going to know it. I'm going to go to bed tonight knowing more than I knew when I woke up. Well, that's already going to happen because you just sat through a church service with a bunch of Scripture. But you're going to wake up tomorrow, and when you go to bed tomorrow night, you're going to go to bed knowing more than you did when you woke up tomorrow morning. Make that commitment every day. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you for making it alive in our hearts. Thank you for giving us wisdom, giving us the Holy Spirit to make it effective in our lives. Thank you for the protection your word offers when we commit ourselves to knowing it. Thank you for the word made flesh. Thank you for Jesus Christ and his shed blood. Father, it's my prayer, the prayer of every believer in this room, that if there is anybody in the sound of my voice who does not know you as Father, does not know Jesus Christ as Savior, that they would come to know him and know you today, that they would step into that precious gift of salvation, that precious gift of eternal life by confessing you as Lord and Savior. Grant them the boldness to make that decision today, the wisdom to recognize their need to make that decision today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website, at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.